This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another edition of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hi, Max. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. And who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Well, today we've got Brendan Rubick, and Brendan is the technology director at America Makes. So Brendan got started as a metallurgist. Uh, he's Penn State first, and then later on, uh, he went to be like working manufacturing plants. And he was a, a process added manufacturing specialist for Rolls Royce for a really long time, and then transitioned to becoming the technology director at the National Center for Defense Manufacturing Machining. The initiators, one of the initiators behind America Makes, and now he does the same role at America Makes as well. So, uh, yeah, welcome to the show, Brandon. Thank you. Yeah, good morning. It's great to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Okay, thanks. And Brandon, just uh, well, we'd first like to know. So, you you have you're, you're a metallurgist. So, as a metallurgist, did did you first look very skeptical at three D printing? Did you think, oh, this is never going to work? <laughs> um, no, actually. So, uh, so I one thing about my metallurgical background is I'm actually, uh, most of my academic training is in welding metallurgy, which there's a lot of similarities between welding processes, particularly fusion welding processes and metal uh, additive manufacturing. Um, not, not all metal processes. I mean, but in terms of even the solid state welding processes, there's a lot of similarities to solid state additive processes as well. And so I think the underpinning physics is a lot of what my academic training was focused on. So physical metallurgy and understanding how processes give rise to mechanical properties or the physical properties of a material. And so it's more or less an extension of that, right? It's a, it's another process and it's another way of producing not only material, but a, but a product, a structure. And so to me, it was uh, almost a next step in the journey. I, I remember actually um, when I first got to Rolls Royce and I was introduced to additive uh, in that role, uh, it made tons of sense to me. And it was exciting to see that people were doing this because a lot of my academic background was in uh, laser welding and a process called hybrid welding, uh, which there's actually a flavor of additive that's that's a uh, being commercially developed called laser hot wire uh, additive manufacturing. And um, it's actually classified by AWS as a uh, hybrid welding technology. It's, it can also be an additive technology. And so it was kind of like an intersection uh, between a new manufacturing domain and uh, all my time spent in school. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, because I think that that I, I really love what I did. Like, is at one point you got involved in really like uh, one of the, the qualification projects for DED and DED, our director of energy deposition is kind of it's kind of a mixed bag in the sense there's some very very different technologies in there. You know, uh, all working on the same general principle. Uh, it kind of always gets a little bit less noticed than like powder bed fusion, especially for the aerospace and space and all stuff. And 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 you know, but to me it's a very versatile technology for making like especially for making really large parts, right? Mm-hmm. For sure. So um, we actually uh, just yesterday announced a, a new project for America Makes. We're going to be looking a lot closer at directed energy deposition with our uh, partners at, at Boeing 
and uh, we're going to start building out more statistically relevant data sets for directed energy deposition of an aerospace alloy uh, TIE 64. And so, you know, for me, um, I think the feasibility and, and scalability of it is there. You know, there are a variety of companies in the United States uh, who have commercial offerings in terms of the equipment. Um, I think there are folks like uh, Norsk Titanium who have been operating in this space for some time now. And, um, you know, they've, they've stood up manufacturing operations. And so it, it's scalable. I think it, it does uh, offer a alternative source of processing to powder bed fusion. Particularly, you, you know, you mentioned the size of parts. But also, you know, if you go and look at the literature, there's been some good stuff published by uh, Paul Gradle and his uh, colleagues at NASA uh, recently on selecting AM processes. And it talks about how certain processes lend to certain feature sizes or, or certain um, volumetric production rates in terms of the material that can be produced in terms of the consolidation on a per unit time basis. And, um, you know, Directed energy deposition offers, you know, another type of opportunity, and uh, even to go beyond the laser-based processes or the plasma-based processes, there's also wire-based uh, pro- or arc-based processes. And so, wire arc additive manufacturing. I mean, that goes right back to gas metal arc welding, but now we're thinking more in the three-dimensional space rather than, say, a single pass or something like buttering. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of utility to be derived there. And uh, we have partners at uh, EWI who've been helping us, us out with understanding that, and they, they've been doing a tremendous job. And, and it, there's another scale to the parts, yes, um, but I think a lot of it has to do with how do we scale the technology in terms of production rate, reliability, uh, and repeatability as well. And so it's great to see how the different tool sets are coming together for those technologies. Yeah, I'm really happy you showed a shout out to the Paul Gradle uh, paper. I thought it was, it's like literally, if you're working in metal out of manufacturing, I think it's one of the best papers you can be fine because it's, 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 it's accessible. It tells you a lot of really practical stuff and there's a lot there for people at any level. I, I really love it. And we're having Paul Gradle on uh, actually in a couple of weeks on the 3D pod. So it's also really good. And I, I just thought it was, it was a wonderful paper to, to, to read. I really think it's, uh, they did a thing on, they published a part of it on 3dprint.com as well to explain it. And talk about the life cycle, post post processing, everything. It's just super clear. It's like if you if you would like be a student wanting to start a metal additive, I would say literally start there. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I agree. I actually had some friends reach out recently, um, and they were asking me some questions along those lines of you know how do we do this and how do we make heads and tails of of additive and um, you know support our customers in terms of helping them to make good choices and uh, that paper was one of the first things i i pushed to them saying hey this is a really good resource um and then and then paul and his colleagues they've also published a book recently too so i'm glad to hear you'll have him on in a couple of weeks that's awesome yeah he's great, he's great. And, and the paper by the way if you're wondering you just do search for paul gradle g-a-r-d-l as robust metal additive manufacturing process selection and development for aerospace components that's a paper so um uh just in case you haven't read it you should so talk to us a little bit about this did because because i think it's exciting like uh, we know that it's being used a long time for turbine disc repair right so we add material and then we machine it down and probably it's been used way more than we know because there's the firms behind that are very kind of close to defense and all this 
uh, it, they really haven't publicized this, right? It hasn't, you know, everybody else in the rest of the 3D printing mar market's like screaming at the top of the lungs, look at me, look at me. And the, the guys like Shaki and Optimac have quietly been repairing all these turbine blades, you know? Yeah, so, uh, you know, folks, they've been working on developing the technology for a long time. So I've been I've been very fortunate uh, in my, my academic uh, training to get to work with the team at, at Los Alamos National Lab, which there were some folks there uh, Ohio State alumni who were involved with some of the early days of um, trying to understand uh, directed energy deposition, uh, the Optimac process. And um, there's a variety of other folks who have been involved in it as well. I, I think Sandia National Lab was also a part of some of that. And uh, not just trying to understand the attributes of the process, but like you said, the utility. And it, it it's interesting because I think about five years ago, my eyes were opened to the world of coatings, surface engineering, and mm. you know the cladding community has been doing processes, right? They they call it cladding. It's not really a, a 3D uh, design, right? It's it's a couple layers of a coating that protects, you know, a variety of applications. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity in oil and gas and energy applications. Um, and so folks have been using it there very successfully for a long time before, you know, this additive community came along. And so I, I think the interesting part is to kind of see the extension of our physical understanding there, which is really integrating automation and controls and, and some of these commercially available platforms like the Optimex system, like the RPMI system and, and, and others. Um, you know, there's, there's a number of folks in this space now. Um, and, and now we're starting to combine different feedstock forms. So, uh, uh, you know, there's a company, Meltio, that I've, I've heard of. I'm not super familiar with the technology, but, you know, adding more opportunity to tailor the process to the application needs, to the geometry and then, um, you know, on the back end, going beyond where we've been as a as a manufacturing community for cladding, and then to say, okay, let's let's try and actually produce, you know, some of these large scale parts. And and when you talk to Paul, um, you know, he's he's been. Uh, I saw a presentation from him at AMUG earlier this year, and he, he's showing some of these um, propulsion components look like rocket nozzles. And they're huge. And, uh, you know, there's all sorts of features there. And, you know, this is directed energy deposition. And um, so, I mean, it's it's interesting to see how far we've come in terms of the, the 3D forms that can be produced. And we're going well beyond just adding a, a few tracks or a few layers of material onto a part, right? So you mentioned geometric restoration or, or repair. And there's tons of opportunity there. there, there you know, it's been documented that particularly, and, and it's not to say only lasers, but lasers, in my opinion, and uh, electron beams as well, they offer uh, a lot of uh, tailorability, right? You can you can tune the characteristics of the heat source to minimize uh, detrimental effects on the material and, and also to help promote stability uh, within the additive process. So you, you have a high degree of control in terms of the geometric restoration um, and, uh, you know, myself, I just find myself super fortunate to have been a small part of that story when I was at Rolls-Royce. 
Uh, and one thing what I thought was really encouraging is like, for example, recently Optimac uh, released a cell, this production cell that automates a lot of this stuff, like the post-processing and the adding material all together in like a really compact footprint. Rivlin Robotics is, is releasing something similar. And that to me is like really encouraging that kind of stuff. I agree. I, I, I think it, it introduces some new challenges, of course. Um, but I think it opens a window for a lot more opportunity. Uh, you know, we, we at America Makes, we've been having a conversation with our members in the AM community now for, I would say, the better part of at least three to five years. And there's so much focus on post-processing, right? It, it reminds me of a conversation I had about a year ago where uh, there was a gentleman telling me, you know, the problem with additive is everything else aside from the printer. And so I, I think it, it represents a lot of opportunity seeing how we're consolidating operations into a single piece of equipment that allows us to um, get closer to the finished part with fewer, uh, well, at least where you got to move it, right? You, you got to do fewer setups, hopefully. And so seeing that integration I think um, it would be interesting to see what also productivity gains uh, can be realized there as well. Um, That's that's definitely a major opportunity facing the AM community right now when it comes to trying to make a a functional part. And so, yeah, I think it's I think it's very exciting. And then to start to think also about how we can integrate different uh, feedstock forums, different types of heat sources, uh, so different, you know, metal AM modalities. Uh, in that. And I mean, predominantly, I think right now, it's it's a chance to combine directed energy deposition and, and subtractive manufacturing and, and finishing. But, uh, you know, a couple years ago, uh, this was at the tail end of 2019, um, I was at Formnext and for the first time I saw a hybrid powder bed fusion process. Uh, I think Metsora uh, was demonstrating a system like that and uh, it was very interesting. And so, you know, I, I think it'll be interesting to see what, what comes from all this. And so, yeah, yeah, trying to keep a finger on the pulse there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Do you have an idea right now with what people are actually using, like when you're at Rolls-Royce, for example, of of how much time or energy is spent on the final steps with these parts, with the finishing and less on the additive or versus the additive? Excuse me. So qu- quite a bit. And I'm trying to uh, r- recall some conversations. So... In fact, I was just at MS&T on, on Monday in, in Pittsburgh, and a colleague of mine from GE Additive, Amber Andraco, was there talking about how we, you know, the pedigree of the material, you know, she showed a list and it, yeah, it covered the process parameters within the machine, but there, there was a number of things downstream uh, that require time and focus. And, you know, aside from, machining and finishing, there's there's heat treatment, and that can take on numerous forms. And then uh, we, we've we been kind of having discussions, and, and I mentioned three to five years, part of that discussion has been heat treatment. So not not just uh, stress relief, uh, there's, there's questions around the order of operations in order to right. kind of maintain the product form in the, in the right state, manage the tolerancing. There is what are the times and temperatures in order to promote the microstructure that we need to realize the mechanical properties or the durability of the product? Um, and, and that can require experimentation and optimization. And um, I've lived through some of that myself. And that, that can take months, right? It, not, not days, months, because you're, you're trying to produce 
material. And then once you get that material fabricated, then you have to do a design of experiments for heat treatment. And and some of those heat treatments can be long. Um, you know, in some cases it can be days and that's one try. And so if you're, you only have one furnace or if you need a special type of furnace, um, that, that makes it harder as well, right? The furnace becomes the bottleneck and, and we haven't even started cutting things up and, and looking at microstructure or doing mechanical testing, which if we're talking about fatigue, statistically based fatigue program can take three months. And so it can be a lot of time in order to to try and, and folks try to parallelize activity. And so, um, you know, kind of on that note, we're, we're hearing a lot of need around efficiency, uh, high throughput test methods and, and opportunities where we can transfer learning from one process or one material system to another. So we can help kind of reduce the time it takes to understanding you know, is this going to be good enough? Is this acceptable? And I haven't even touched upon inspection either. And so, uh, yeah, it's very challenging. And uh, you know, not to not to uh, short things like machining and finishing. That that's also very hard. In fact, we we have a couple of projects. In fact, one we're going to be talking with folks about next week because we have our TRX in Huntsville um, on finishing and and just that. I mean, we you know, there's a variety of options. The, the question is, given the inputs, what parameters do we need in order to get the outputs that we desire? And there's there's a number of variables in terms of some finishing processes. And, it, and it's, you know, tuning that is dependent upon, you know, the condition of the surface when you put it in. And, and as we know, right, not, not every metal that we put through an additive process uses the same parameters. And so therefore, the the microstructure, the surface finish that comes out of the additive process is going to be different as we change materials, as potentially we change the make and model of the AM equipment uh, or the, the modality of the technology, say laser versus electron beam, and for a variety of reasons. And, and, and so how do we kind of manage that? And yes, it, it becomes a snowball effect, right? Because each operation could be its own design of experiments. So it's a lot. Right. It's more than I think most people anticipate in the beginning of their journey in additive. And then, okay, there's also like different placement and all this of the part. It gets it gets oh, more right and more complicated. Thing. And yeah. I think with more machine complexity, I think it even maybe will even get more complicated if we go into multi-laser and all this as well. It can, for sure. And I mean, then you begin to start to talk about multi-material. And, and now you're trying to manage not only the volume of material that's present, but how delicately you have to treat that in order to live with differences in CTE. And um, you know, in terms of differences in CTE, you know, folks who do things for space and, and aerospace application or aviation applications, they've been dealing with that for a long time. And so uh, it's not just material selection. Design plays a very important role there as well. Um, but, you know, also to, to kind of be fair, because I, I don't want folks to take away that, oh, that's a big, you know, that that's only unique to additive. Right. It's not. I mean, we, we take for granted that the folks understand how to heat treat these commercially available alloys now, but it took a lot of time to get there for those materials as well. The, the unique attribute here is, is that we didn't start with a lump of material, right, that 
oh, we qualified that. So the final shape will have the same behavior. That's that's the nuance here. But, you know, in many cases, we're starting from scratch because folks are deriving utility for their unique design point solutions. And each of those point solutions have their own requirements. And so that introduces the need for sometimes optimization. Yeah. And we have We're 50 years kind of, of knowledge on how to test the existing stuff, whereas we only have, you know, 10 years, five years of ability to make this stuff now. <laughs> it, it, yeah. And so, I mean, that's another thing that we get into conversations about a lot too, right, is, is trust. And then um, when it, it, you just reminded me of something from Monday when I was at MS&T, I was talking about needs for research and, and standards. And I brought up a point to folks that aligning the capability to the application requirements is more challenging than most of us always assume. And it's because particularly where where additive has a lot of utility in in spares and um, sustainment, right? The folks who are trying to make the part now weren't the individuals or maybe even the entity that designed the original part. In some cases, that supply chain's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. So there's no one to ask and say, why did we put that requirement there? And who knows if that was based upon the the beginning of the journey or something they learned after, you know, they made the first 10,000 parts, right? Or, you know, it's like, oh, we learned that in the fifth year of production and we can't do that because that's going to cause major problems for us. And so, yes, there's there's a challenge there. I think it's also, again, we're also kind of stuck, and especially, you know, in the kind of defense and stuff where all the parts that matter either give you like a, an advantage competitively or, you know, are going to be shrouded in secrecy. And the, the, the methods that matter to get there are often these learnings are very often internalized by either the service bureaus or either the, the companies that make these parts, or they just can't simply share it because they're operating in a really kind of very high, high secure environment. So how do you like help the defense community, for example, where everybody's going to be really cagey about working together? How do you get that, entice them to share the right type of things? Because like I, I have, I know this, that there are people doing exactly the same stuff over and over again as well. You bring up a excellent point. So we had a, a chat with folks over the summer at our MMX, and we had some, some uh, roundtable discussions. Uh, we had a large business and a small business uh, roundtable discussion. And I think it was particularly on the, the large uh, business table discussion, that point came up. And there were a number of OEMs around the table, and they said, you know, we're probably doing a lot of the same thing. How can we not come up with a, a common approach that we could all live with and, and allows us to move out at a faster pace? So I, I think it's something that folks desire. You know, it, 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 what we have observed or what I have observed in my, my short time at America Makes, you know, and this, this takes me back to, you know, two years ago now when we were involved in um, our advanced manufacturing crisis production response activities uh, and helping out with uh, making technical data packages for PPE available, what, what we observed is there, there's tremendous utility in making data readily available and, and having confidence in the data, but it doesn't address shortcomings in our ability to practice, right? To execute manufacturing operations. It, to to your, your point there of the, well, there's the IP, right? I know how to do. And, and I think folks are trying to address opportunities where some of these things are able to be standardized. Um, I, I know 
uh, folks at, at ASTM and other standards development organizations have been have been working really hard on trying to understand things like characterization uh, or different uh, you know, test methods per se or, or techniques that those are can be very much recurring quality control activities that, that we have to do and and when we're actually trying to produce parts and so let's make that routine right Let, let's make that a standard that doesn't necessarily have to be secret sauce it's it's really when you get to the fifth layer of the onion if, if you want to think about it of layers um, that's when it becomes the secret sauce because we're, we're talking about the widget on the you know x5000 system in that particular subsystem under these operating conditions and we need all of these other things to be there so that at the end of the day i have confidence and faith that it's going to perform throughout its life cycle and and so it's all the things beneath that that like you know bob on third shift we got to make sure that he knows that you can't mix these two powders and and, right. and really no one should ever do that so like let's make that a standard i i think those are active and ongoing discussions within the am community of how do we do that but it's it's I a big like opportunity it's one of the largest conversations is bringing standardization at this point but at the same time it means that it's it's turned the corner and it's not just prototyping which which it hasn't been for years but you're, I think you're absolutely right that we need some kind of standardization system moving forward. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, you know, another direction where people are trying to you know, bring together different data sets and really provide that foundational information. For it, it, because, I mean, some of the standards we have right now, they're great. It's just some of them, they're, they don't really outline what are the acceptance criteria. Right. I think there's there's been some discussions and we, we had some of this conversation at a workshop at uh, one of our, our uh, fellow institutes, MXD, in the summer. So we, we work with NCMS on a AM workshop that they host annually uh, as part of uh, AMMO, which is uh, Additive Manufacturing for, for Maintenance and Operations. And one of the breakout groups that I was a part of was focused on R&D for standardization. And I think that's a big opportunity right now is to kind of get those foundational data sets that give us the rigor that we need to say something definitive about like, we were able to show that this is the, the primary driver, or these are the, the primary factors that are the most, you know, our outcomes are most sensitive to watch for these things whenever you do your, your manufacturing operations, because right now everyone's you know, kind of weary about everything, right? It's it's a full moon tonight. No printing today. I mean, I I'm joking, but <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. get nervous about a lot of things, and it just requires a full requalification every time. And that's another, yeah. I just think there there's so many. Um, well, this is another thing. Like qualifying is another thing where you've got kind of talked about it before. Like all these settings are a problem when we get new materials. Also, when we qualify parts. You know, is there a way where we can like automate this? And and there are I've seen like Oak Ridge I think came out with a thing, and NASA came out with some software driven approaches to try to make qualification easier. There's people now working on commercial packages that are said to do that. I mean, do you think that's because that, that is an also an awful lot of time? You're talking before about the hours of doing these acceptance test stuff. You know, but if you go further to qualifying parts and stuff, then you know it's going to take like uh, it takes an insane amount of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a lot of money too, right? So, I mean, you're you're talking about tying up an engineer or a team of engineers for, 
you know, it could be a year and a half, potentially. It could be six months. It just depends upon your level of understanding and comfort with the application. And, you know, there's a number of folks who are doing great work in this space. Uh, if, if, you know, just to think about some things uh, immediately that we're involved in, but I, I probably won't be able to rattle off all of them. But one that comes to mind is a, a program that we call uh, JMAD. Uh, it's an abbreviation. It's the the Joint Additive uh, Materials Allowable Database or something along those lines. I can't remember exactly. Or Design Database, I think it stands for. And what it really is, is we're trying to exercise uh, a development process and a, uh, a material allowable generation activity that is uh, in line with what MMPDS is is sharing with the community at this point. So they've they've published some things, they've shared some things that are available now about what we have historically called in the uh, aerospace community an A and B basis allowable. In the case of additive, they call it a C or D basis allowable, but really it has to do with some statistics and how the data falls within the bell curve and, and the confidence interval you have to use there. But more or less, it, it allows you to set kind of that, that design minimum. And what we're doing as a team is we're not only building coupons, but we're looking at a number of variables within the process chain, right? Not just the additive process, but the post-processing, et cetera, and tracking things about the feedstock so that we can build that rigor. And, and it's for the sake of materials data, but if you think about it from a qualification perspective, it's providing transparency to the community about what did you do to get there, right? And so our plan is, is to try and share as much of that as possible. And this other project, or I guess it's big enough to call a program, that we just announced yesterday uh, that we call the abbreviation is GAMET. It stands for Generation of Additive Material Allowables for TIE 6.4, but it's a directed energy deposition activity where the JMAD is powder bed fusion. It's a sister thing where we're going to try and do it there as well. And the idea is... What are the things you did to get there? I mean, it's not just the data, right? The data is absolutely has you know, enduring value, and it will. It you know, the goal is to to get it published and have it be available to the community in the long term. Um, but between here and there, what are all the things that were done in order to promote that confidence and trust? And so, I think that's going to be a bit of an enduring resource. There's also a lot of advanced things that people are doing. So you mentioned the team at Oak Ridge and others. You know, we, we have a, a program with the Colorado School of Mines, and they're working on uh, data-driven qualifications, so trying to understand monitoring and modeling and, and how can that help us in terms of qualification, not just for one process, but trying to take what you learn from one AM modality, say powder bed fusion, and apply that direct to directed energy deposition with, with a, a common material system. We, we just wrapped up here a few years ago, a program on advanced tools for rapid qualification. And that helped us to understand factors that can drive variance in material behavior whenever we're trying to operate additive under nominal conditions uh, versus we're systematically varying process parameters. So, you know, how can we drive an effect on, on a material's behavior versus what's the type of spread or, you know, just normal everyday variants I could see within a material system and, and what are the discontinuities in the material that, that may drive some of the variants and things like, say, fatigue. 
And, and then how does that relate back to my actions when I ran the machine? And, and the teams there coupled that with, with monitoring as well, and in some cases, modeling. We also looked at it not just for things like fatigue, but corrosion behavior, um, and even polymers. Uh, so that was an activity led by the uh, National Institute for Aviation Research uh, at Wichita State University. And so we're, we're working in that. It's a huge area. There, there's tons to be done there, to say the least. But I, I think you know integrating tools that give us particularly actionable data is important. But I think also another opportunity, which is going back to things that are downstream from the additive process, inspection and rapid inspection technologies, because I think some folks just say, oh, well, you know, we're going to x-ray it. And they may not realize that there's a procedure that has to be developed in order to x-ray parts effectively. And it, it, it's all based around the geometry of the part and the size of the discontinuity that you need to be able to resolve. And and so that can make inspection very, very challenging and or time consuming, right? Which is another challenge because the longer it takes, the more expensive it is, and it degrades the business case. And then also another thing, you were talking about TI-64. It's wonderful. We all use it. It used to be the most popular material, right? And it's still very popular for a lot of applications. Mm-hmm. But we're seeing... That TI-64 now, Inconel 718-625 is like the uh, the materials that are really, you know, very popular at the moment. And, and then, you know, growing, I think, in metals with aluminum to a certain extent or different aluminums. But, you know, don't we need a new generation of materials first? Or, you know, you know, we're, we're you know, because a lot of these materials were developed in like the 70s and stuff. And I mean, don't we need newer materials before we get started on this? Because <laughs> we're going to have to qualify the new stuff anyway? Or does that not make sense, right? <laughs> So I, I, I think the perspective or logic there has been start with what you know. And mm-hmm. I think I think folks have found that there are unique microstructures and unique behaviors that additive processing of materials promotes. And so we've been spending the last six, seven years really digging into that deep. And now that we believe we understand some of those process structure property relationships, we are starting to see a growing interest in in material, new material development. In fact, um, we held a workshop not this past summer in 22, but in 21 around alloy development uh, for additive manufacturing. And we posed the question to the community in two ways. Uh, Let's think about existing commercially available alloys and then modifying them in some way. Um, it may be chemically, maybe it's physically, right? We, we know the form of the feedstock can affect process uh, re- repeatability. And, um, you know, we got everybody's ideas there. And then we also said, well, what if we just start from scratch, like, like you're saying? Yes, there, there, there are opportunities. I mean, what we saw, you know, higher temperature capable nickel super alloys, which are also oxidation resistant, higher temperature capable aluminum alloys for for lightweighting um and then uh probably the the third uh biggest you know indicator was high temperature refractory alloys which are oxidation resistant um and so i mean i i think those are all uh areas of considerable interest and 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 there are a number of folks who have been working in that space for a while so uh, there's a there's a small business out west, Elementum 3D, uh, who's been doing some things in terms of materials development. HRL 
has been working in aluminum alloys as well. And, and there are others, you know, and I mean, um, I'm trying to think NASA has has been working on materials development. So they have their GRX810, uh, which is showing really excellent creep properties. Um, I think uh, some of the stuff that they've put on YouTube shows up to a thousand degrees centigrade. Um, and so that's very exciting. Um, I think particularly for the, uh, you know, the gas turbine engine community and, and understanding what can be done there. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely an opportunity. I, I, I think what we were all trying to come to grips with is the, the additive processing. And now that we, some of us, I'll say, feel like we understand it, because, uh, I mean, it doesn't mean everyone does. And I mean, there's always something more to learn. But I think there is a growing mindset that, at least what I observe from the data in our workshop, is that there is a belief that tailoring the alloy presents a step change in capability. It presents an untapped opportunity for for some of these industries and, and you know particularly space and, and the air the airframe community, so the aviation community, were the heaviest hitters for these types of ideas. Uh, but I mean there were even folks from the automotive community that said, you know, I would I would love to see these things. And and so I think there's potential there. In fact I I uh, was just reviewing I don't remember which year it was, but I was looking back at uh, some uh, events data that I have from, you know, some of these apps, they allow you to go and watch the videos again. And I was watching this presentation by a gentleman from GM and he's saying, you know, I want compatibility and scalability and, and reproducibility and, and predictability and, and it has to ha- be processable and integrate with our operations. And, and, what he was really saying, and, I, and it, he might have even explicitly stated this, is that I'm I'm open to alloy development, and and these are the things that I want that material to do for me and for my manufacturing operations. And I'm like, that, that's awesome, you know. And so, I, I yeah, I think that's what people expect from this, right? That the heaviest indicator is it has to provide product specific capability improvement. Number one, and then after that, it's like, okay, this has to readily integrate with my you know, my, my supplier's operations after that. And so it's, you know, that's kind of the, the North star right now within that community. If you were to ask me. Okay. Because that's really mm-hmm. cool because we know that we can not only make novel microstructures and stuff, we can make what well, you were talking about coatings as well, but we can also develop alloys far quicker using 3d printing, right? Yes. So, and, and I'm going to go back to my welding training, right? If, <laughs> if, if, if we look at that, that's what the welding community has done for a long time. I won't even date it, but you know these, these companies that produce wire feedstock, it's what's in the textbooks. It, it tells us that you not only want to produce good microstructure, as you said, but there are things that you can do that, that control you know the physical, uh, the thermophysical in particular, of the material so that when you melt it or you work it, or whatever you choose to do to uh, form this product, it lends itself to actual manufacturing operations. It allows you to tune productivity. And so I think there's opportunity there as well. I mean, it, it, the historical evidence is there. And you mentioned, I think you mentioned your X810, right? Or um, the, uh, the, these oxygen dispersion materials, right? What's so special about them? Because they, they've been really kind of overlooked, and now all of a sudden they're completely in vogue now, right? So it depends upon what you mean by overlooked. So I mean, um, you know, or my secret, understanding, then. <laughs> uh, secret. So maybe I, 
Um, so, I mean, uh, I, I've kind of gotten some history lessons here in the last few years uh, with some colleagues at NASA Glenn Research. And, you know, the, the GR COP 84 has been around a long time. It's, mm-hmm. it's not new. Additive is new in comparison to GRCOP 84. And, G, and you know, I, there, there are distinctions, and Paul will talk to you about this probably in a couple of weeks, about 84 and 42. And I, I think GRCOP 84 taught us a lot. And I don't know if that was necessarily the genesis, but, you know, kind of how I've come to be familiar with things, it, it, you know, what I've observed, there was a lot that folks learned from that. And, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, if you, you look at some things that folks are doing, not just at NASA, but, you know, around the community in terms of oxide dispersion strengthening or, you know, other communities call it inoculants, right? Which that's been in the casting world for a long time. And I mean, there, there are even, you know, you could look at steel making. There are, you know, certain uh, secondary phases, you know, inclusions more or less that you can put into these materials by design to control grain size. It's just that that can be challenging to do for some material systems. So kind of going back to the metallurgy material science here as well, there's a flip side to that, right? You want to introduce it so you promote good behaviors, not behaviors like cracking or incipient melting where, oh, I take it to my operating temperature and, oh, look, the material just falls apart, right? We can't can't have that. And so I think that's some of the dance, right, is how do you effectively integrate the, these uh, additional phases of material or these inoculants or disper- you know, uh, dispersoids and then promote good behaviors, so people have been thinking about these things for a long time. I mean, it's it's been published for titanium alloys as well because they're the no- notorious that if you heat them up, you can have uh, large grains or in the case of additive with fusion processes, long columnar grains. And that can, in some cases, you know, degrade your properties. And so how do you break that up? Well, folks, you know, over a hundred years ago said forging, right? Let's work the material and break up those grains and promote recrystallization and good things that increase yield strength. Uh, in this case, we're trying to do it through additive microcasting, right? So how do I add sugar and spice to the to the soup so that I get the microstructure I need? And for me, I think it's great because they're also realizing not only that we're not seeing the cracking and it makes the process you know the the material compatible with the process, the AM process, which is I think recently, you know, last five, six years, new thing. But then only that, wow, look, look at what it's doing for my elevated temperature properties, like in the case of GRX810. No, I know. I think it's a really exciting time. I think I really, you know, there's a lot of these methods out there that make me think that you could develop like an alloy for like, you know, only one part of a, uh, you know, turbine machinery kind of component or something like that. You know, it's, it's actually going to be viable to really make a material for just really, really limited parts, just as long as they're high value. Yes. And if you go and you read uh, some books about turbine disc technology, that's the narrative there. It is these things are so critical and their performance is vital, right, to not only, say, a product line, right, say someone's selling hundreds and hundreds of gas turbine engines, but, you know, that's very difficult to replace a disc in a gas turbine engine. 
uh, you have to take a lot of things apart. That's very expensive. And and for a plane to be on the ground because of that, uh, that's not a good, you know, you don't want that. So then, well, how do you promote uh, this this ability to keep these materials at these temperatures and these operating conditions for so long? And yes, that is that is a data point that exists within the history of the aerospace community where you're absolutely that, that, that that's the story there that like this is so important and and so therefore yeah we we need to bring all that together and you know the gas turbine engine companies have done that for a long time and they do it very well mm, totally Oh, I, I was gonna like ask you about intermetallics and stuff. We're really out of time because <laughs> that's that the logical thing there. But okay, but Brandon, so thank you so much for this. You guys have a wealth of information. It's absolutely lovely. Oh, good. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. It's it's been a real pleasure to be a part of this, and I really enjoyed the conversation. All right, thank you, and uh, thank you for being here again, Max. Well, that was interesting. Thank you, Jules. And thank you for listening. Uh, this is Joris Peels and Maxwell Vogue. And this is another episode of the 3D Pod. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.